about well, what cases do we actually see uh, in, in the UK and where has data been significant or not significant um, in terms of revealing corruption. That was really the thrust of what we uh, were trying to achieve for the impact section of the UK research and that's what I'm going to present on uh, now. Uh, so uh, broadly I'll just go through the uh, methodology. Uh, it's quite um, you know, a different approach. We haven't, we haven't uh, used this methodology before. Uh, our research findings uh, and then we've gone through based on what we think is significant from the data and try to assess where that data is available in the UK. So it's a kind of map of what's available um, and very keen to just get uh, all ideas. Uh, this is a, a big theme of work for Transparency International uh, overall, but Transparency International UK as well. So any ideas very helpful uh, to inform uh, all of that. So what we did uh, is um, not just one, one case, Ben, we found uh, 95 cases uh, of uh, corrupt behaviour uh, in the UK and uh, we analysed them for the, for the method of disclosure. Um, so some came from uh, official disclosure, whether it's open data or freedom of information counted as official, um, and some were unofficial disclosures, so they might be a leak, uh, they might be investigative journalism, and we wanted to compare um, that the, uh, uh, where there was um, a data set relevant to that disclosure. Um, we, we can break that down between corrupt uh, behaviour types, so we looked at a range of different types of corruption, and uh, what we thought we'd find, uh, and did come through in the data, is the different types of corruption relevant to different data sets. Um, so, uh, what we want to do is basically pull the lessons, uh, largely um, uh, from the unofficial world, why uh, have uh, you know, information had to be brought out through unofficial means that were relevant to um, uh, public interest understanding about a corrupt behaviour, it helped reveal uh, a corrupt behaviour, but it had to come through an unofficial uh, route. So why can't the official open data regime accommodate that information? Uh, so in terms of our control issues, uh, we are, um, how we drew the cases, we, we, we went through all TIUK uh, research reports. Um, uh, one of the reasons for that is that every research report that TIUK produces, if we do mention a, a specific uh, case study of corruption, it's gone through a libel check um, and has had several kind of layers of peer review, um, so that's important. Uh, we also went through our daily corruption news, which is global, um, but took out the UK case studies um, as relevant from 2012 to 2014, um, and we did some additional desktop uh, research. Um, what's important to note is that when we talk about corruption, we're using the Transparency International uh, definition of an abuse of entrusted power for private gain. Uh, critically, that includes um, behaviour that's illegal, but also behaviour in the space of unethical or against codes of um, uh, conduct or rules, um, uh, 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 and it doesn't have to be criminal behaviour. Um, there is a slight counterfactual judgement um, that we're making, uh, because from the cases that have been revealed, uh, we then make an assessment uh, of, of which data sets might be most relevant to that specific case. That's a, a, a judgment made, made by the research team based on um, that experience of uh, which data sets um, are relevant to that type of behaviour. So our disclosure types, uh, we looked at lobbying abuses, bribery, um, undeclared conflicts of interest uh, and improper use of public funds uh, and corrupt uh, insider fraud. Uh, and then in terms of our disclosure types, uh, you can see a range of official methods of disclosure there um, and we compare them against unofficial uh, methods of disclosure. Uh, in terms of our overall case study library, so that, those 95 cases broadly break down. We try to achieve as much a balance as possible. 
um, but bribery dominates uh, in terms of the uh, types of corruption um, that are relevant to data sets and that have been uh, made available publicly. Uh, lobbying, the most second, second most common uh, type of corruption assessed, uh, and then uh, conflicts of interest, the proper use of public funds and corrupt inside fraud. Um, if you look on the uh, pie chart to the right, um, the majority of our cases are coming from official information. Um, so that's where uh, there's been an official report on uh, an incident of uh, corruption, or it could have come through any of those disclosure routes that were labelled as official. Uh, and these are the data sets that we uh, assess those cases against. Uh, so we broadly break them down into public sector integrity data. Um, that, those are data sets that relate to um, perhaps uh, interest in asset uh, declarations, uh, registers of interest, salary data from within the public sector, um, uh, usually any kind of uh, uh, public uh, reporting of um, uh, public sector or public officials' information. Um, lobbying and decision-making data. Um, so that area is relatively weak, certainly in the UK, we'll get onto that, but um, the types of data sets that we were looking at uh, included uh, meetings data, lobbyist registry uh, data, minutes of um, official meetings, that's kind of uh, meetings behind decisions, um, and the results of public consultations, submissions and conclusions. And then the third category, um, public spending data. Uh, so uh, we include in that performance data, but uh, that comes back to the uh, contractual information, um, uh, and uh, expenses as well. So, uh, what we're able to do then with all that data and uh, 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 analysis is break down by each corrupt behaviour type, which data sets have um, appeared most commonly, uh, anyway, in the, um, uh, as relevant to the case studies that we looked at. Um, and this is basically what it, what it uh, represents. Uh, so for bribery, um, gifts and hospitality uh, register data um, uh, is, is the most significant uh, data set, but um, shortly behind uh, registers of interest. Often they go together, but often they are uh, under different regimes. Uh, and then um, dropping down slightly, uh, lobbying meetings data with the most relevant uh, data set. Um, the biggest source of disclosure for bribery uh, was law enforcement. Um, clearly we're talking about a type of corruption that's on the most criminal uh, end. Um, and uh, uh, often we're reliant on uh, law enforcement, whether it's an SFO, um, public announcement, uh, or some other form of law enforcement, um, uh, giving details about a specific bribery case. Um, the uh, most common um, non-official uh, method of disclosure was whistleblowers, um, but really kind of official disclosure and, and police within that uh, dominated uh, bribery disclosures. Uh, inside of fraud, uh, so the most common uh, uh, relevant data sets for inside of fraud, again, registers of interest play an important role, um, but bringing in um, much more of that uh, uh, third category, that kind of spending and performance data uh, being relevant to uncovering uh, inside of fraud uh, relative to some of the other corrupt behaviour types. So performance information, staff pay and roles, uh, public spending records being very, very relevant uh, for uncovering uh, in, inside of fraud. Conflict of interest, uh, so again, registers of interest data uh, being uh, very significant, um, but then we start to uh, open up the world of lobbying uh, information. So uh, whether it's minutes of official decision-making meetings, um, gifts and hospitality register, uh, and lobbying meetings data, for the case studies we had related to conflicts of interest, um, those data sets um, branching out more into the uh, lobbying and decision-making space. Uh, and then lobbying. 
so uh, lobbying meetings data, um, funnily enough, uh, being uh, very relevant to lobbying abuses. Um, now, what's uh, significant with the, the kind of range of corrupt behaviour types that we've just looked at, um, lobbying tends to be um, not only um, not criminal uh, in terms of the abuses that have come out and case studies of, of scandal, uh, if you like, um, sometimes it can occur within the rules. So there's an outrage that such behaviour can take place within the rules, but it might not necessarily um, be uh, explicitly prohibited in a code of conduct, um, even at that lower threshold of non-criminal uh, breaches uh, of the rules. Um, when we're looking at conflicts of interest, at its most extreme end, it could be considered a bribery or um, a bribery act offence, at least, um, but often it's in the code of conduct uh, space uh, in terms of that breach. Um, lobbying is quite unique in terms of how poorly uh, regulated um, the uh, entire space uh, is. So, um, what that means is that there's a difference between the, the uh, uh, typical uh, value of, of, of different data sets. So, um, what we can start to pull across is when public sector integrity data is going to be most useful, uh, and that is generally the most useful category of data, um, particularly registers of interest and gifts and hospitality uh, data. Um, but lobbying and decision-making data being useful uh, in slightly different proportions for different types of um, corrupt behaviour types. And then public spending data um, uh, being useful for lobbying and bribery and some of our improper use of public funds case studies for insider fraud, really the most uh, significant um, type of corrupt uh, behaviour relevant to public spending data. And then if we flip that round, you can take uh, the type of corrupt behaviour and then pull, up, pull out what is, what is the most significant uh, data sets that might have, not be relevant to that, that type of abuse. Uh, and that's really what we wanted to achieve through all of this analysis. Uh, we wanted to have some evidence base for saying uh, beyond open data is useful for transparency and transparency is useful for anti-corruption. But specifically, uh, what case studies um, uh, tell us uh, about the specific different types of behaviour which come under this very broad term of corruption, um, which data sets are most relevant? Uh, now, when we say relevant, we come back to Liz's point at the very start of the day, whether we're talking about preventative action uh, or deterrence. Uh, for these case studies, um, there's, an, there's an element that we are um, saying for that particular type of abuse, this data set would have been useful um, at either in a deterrence um, point of view or a, um, uh, a detection point of view. Um, so, so we kind of can't disaggregate that from the data we have. Uh, I think what's worth bearing in mind is that, especially on the criminal uh, offences that relate to the more extreme types of corrupt behaviour, um, we have been relevant, uh, reliant on uh, law enforcement declarations and law enforcement uh, announcements of those uh, allegations, and it's less likely that official disclosures uh, are useful, obviously, because if people are, uh, have criminal intent, um, they're not likely to be so silly uh, as to fill that in in a form to confirm their criminality. Um, but the um, uh, disclosures are still useful um, because it provides a starting point or at least a proof uh, of deceit uh, in some way. So it's likely to add in some way to the intelligence that is available for a prosecution for some of those more serious offences. Uh, however, what we've found is for the um, types of corrupt behaviour which are non-criminal, 
so there's a breach of code of conduct, uh, or there's a breach of ethics, which isn't quite captured in the rules, but you know relates to a public scandal. Um, that uh, uh, declared information tends to be uh, much more useful. So people are prepared to obviously not lie on forms uh, when they um, uh, when they believe they're acting within the rules, but that data can be useful for exposing what we might consider um, corrupt behaviour. And then we map that across uh, well, what's, what's available. So we know what um, data is useful for different types of corrupt uh, behaviour, what, what actually is available in the UK central government and the UK parliament. Uh, and then on a five-point uh, scale, uh, we assessed um, UK parliament and UK central government. Uh, and broadly, the story is, is not too bad uh, for the UK. Um, coming back to uh, Nikos's presentation, uh, the UK does score generally quite well on some of the international uh, indices. Um, particularly uh, public sector integrity data, um, so a lot of you know, fours dominate there, um, and uh, really the areas of weakness are secondments, uh, it's very opaque, particularly lobbying secondments, that's where perhaps an, an energy firm might second staff into the department for uh, energy and climate change, and that is not available um, uh, publicly, uh, proactively. Um, but generally, uh, it's, it's, it's not too bad. Um, in terms of lobbying and decision-making data, that really is where the UK suffers. Um, so a lot of um, uh, ones, uh, which is the bottom of the scale, um, particularly uh, uh, and um, disappointingly in Parliament, um, but also in central government. And then public spending data, uh, not so relevant for the for Parliament, um, but uh, that's really where the UK has tried to just produce information because it's already in a data set form. Nikos talked about the um, tens of thousands of data sets that were just dumped uh, as the government engaged in the open data agenda. Um, a lot of that tended to be um, either transport data or public spending data. Um, so what we've seen is there's a lot of information out there um, and relatively the weak area is performance and information on services, which is information that you might find um, useful uh, if you're trying to evaluate whether that money was well spent, uh, what the money was spent on, uh, was it effective, um, which can help to uh, understand whether there have been abuses taking place. So, caveats uh, and uh, the risk of open data. Um, from, from the analysis uh, and from our uh, stakeholder roundtables interview process, um, cost, we've heard before um, about that reporting burden. Um, in the Italian example, uh, there was uh, public officials uh, you know, reporting it's just, it's just extra work and they don't, they're not able to do it. And that does um, present itself as a, as, a, as a risk of open data. There is a cost there. Um, and we hope that our research is uh, a way to kind of be more strategic in what data sets we ask for, rather than just everything being um, made available. Um, it can enable fraud and organised crime to exploit institutions. So particularly when we're thinking about that um, financial data, open contracts uh, and um, uh, invoices, payments, receipts, uh, all of that can be used to support fraud. So a typical kind of uh, invoicing fraud is to um, uh, send uh, an, an invoice through for a contract which you know is all the details available publicly to perhaps a local authority, and they say, oh, actually, our bank account details have changed, they've got a fake uh, invoice. That kind of fraud is much more possible. And there are privacy and civil liberties uh, uh, limits, potentially, to transparency, uh, particularly when we're talking about how much should be declared by what level of public official, um, uh, when they're not elected politicians, um, and uh, what should be made available to public scrutiny. 
So that's uh, UK uh, impact research. Uh, I think you're going to uh, hear from Risk now on the Italian research. Okay.